Hello and welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are the Retro Talk Network where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia radio, television, movies. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, good chances we're going to talk about it or we've talked about it or we're talking about it right now. No, we're not. We're introducing our staff. Hello, I'm Mike. <laughs> I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And again, you're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. You can catch us at our website. <clears throat> GalaxyMoonbeamNightSite.com Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite, that's S-I-T-E dot com We have a Facebook page, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite. That's our Facebook page, and we love emails. Keep them coming. Save a postage stamp and make our day. Our email is GalaxyMoonbeamNightsite at gmail.com GalaxyMoonbeamNightsite at gmail.com And we've got an exciting show. We've got technology. We've got a story about money. And we've got a story about anything that plugged in. No, that's the intro. That's okay. the intro, yeah. I'm going to turn it over to you, Smitty. I need uh, a cold drink here. <laughs> okay, well, have a cold drink, Mike. Why, thank mean- you. Yeah, and in the meantime, we're very pleased to have with us in the studio again our very good friend and very frequent contributor, Mike Zaccaro. Mike, welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam. Gilbert, it is good to be here. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. <laughs> Hello. Hello. A lot of people don't I'm know sorry. that Galaxy I'm Moonbeam Nightside Tower is high atop Smith Mountain. I had to put the snow tires. I had to put snow tires on my truck to get up the serpentine path when I'm here. Uh, okay, well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you made it and you're back with us. And uh, we're going to start off with you this show. We're going to talk to you a little bit about early pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes. And I know this is an area that you like to deal with, early recordings. You know, we know that you like records and you also like tapes. So talk to us a little bit about pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes. And these are tapes that were like record albums, but if you wanted to have a, a particular artist back in the early days, you'd buy a you'd buy an open reel tape, right? That is true. Okay. Starting in the early 1950s, actually in 1950, the very first seven-inch reel-to-reel pre-recorded tapes were made, and this was at a time when very few people even had tape recorders. Tape recorders first came into home use in 1946, mm-hmm. and uh, there were just weren't many of them. But if you were really into audio reproduction, a good quality tape. Preferably right off a master tape, uh, was as close as you can get, if not better, than an LP. And so for the first few years of the 1950s, there was a company called AV Tapes in New York, AV Tape Labs, and they made the very first monophonic uh, pre recorded tapes, which I believe were. I think they were exclusively classical. There may have been a few popular mm-hmm. selections. Mm-hmm. And then in 1953, they did the very first stereo tapes, which was the only way you could get stereo at the time. Right. I was going to say that prior to the introduction of the stereo LP, the only way to get true stereo reproduction in your home would be to have an open reel tape. That is true. And the stereo LP didn't come out till the end of 1958. So for uh, from 1950 through 1958, if you wanted to hear... Well, actually, at that time, it was called binaural okay. reproduction. Uh, the only way to do it was, was on tape. That and is that, correct. of course, Required a tape deck with a stereo head and two separate amplifiers. Yeah, and actually the very, very first machines used two separate mono heads that were separated by several inches. It was called staggered heads. Wow. They were recorded that way, and you had to play it back that way. Uh, and then I'm thinking 1953 or 54, like my Ampex 350 machine was made in 1954, and that had one of the very first in-line stacked heads, you know, mm-hmm. one on top of the other, and which is the way it's always been since then. The very first stereo tapes that I could 
David Discern, uh, came out in 1953, and that was by AV Tape Labs. But in 1954, a company that you may be familiar with, RCA, was yes. the first big major company. I, I think I've heard of them before. You might have heard of them. You know, <laughs> David Sarnoff said, there's a buck to be made here. <laughs> and they were the first major company to release mono, and I believe full track, mono reel-to-reel classical tapes in 1954. And I'd like to point out that these tapes were not cheap. Back in the days when you could buy an LP for maybe 3 or $4, uh, a good uh, mono or stereo recorded tape would cost you several times that. You wow. know, the cost of maybe two or three albums or maybe more. But if you really wanted, well, if you wanted stereo, it was the only way. And if you really wanted better reproduction than an album could reproduce, that was the way to go. If you were lucky enough to have the machine to play it back, which, just, which itself was not cheap. How popular were these tapes, Mike, when they first came out, the pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes? Well, you know, interestingly enough, up until 1966, pre-recorded tapes were only 4% of the of the music market. I mean, the other 96% would have been uh, LPs and probably at that time maybe a few A-tracks. Eight, eight they were not that popular, and they were sold all through the 1950s into the 60s into the 70s. But if you go poking around today, as I have at garage sales and flea markets and so on, they are hard to find, particularly right. the early two-track stereo tapes from the 1950s. Uh, Four-track came out in 1958, but they're just not common. Uh, they were expensive. They were, they were just not cheap. Right. Mike, is it a good guess to say that in the world of technology, quality takes a while to catch on to? I would guess that's probably true, because the only people who bought these early on were the guys who were real audiophiles. So everyone else was getting the mass-produced uh, regular stuff. Uh, for stereo, that would be true. Like I said, if you wanted stereo, it was the only way to do it. But yeah, there were guys who were hardcore enthusiasts who even today feel that your first-generation analog tape, uh, or at least a good copy of it, sounds even better than a CD. So at that time, I mean, it was an audiophile format. Starting in the early 60s, it became less so. In the early 60s, they started to slow down the tape speed. They went from uh, seven and a half inches per second to three and three quarters. They went from two track to four track, which means you could play the tape, flip it over and play the other side. And all of these had an effect on the quality of the sound. But today, the most sought after tapes are the two track tapes that were made in the early 1950s up to maybe 1955, 56 by companies like RCA and all the other major companies, major record labels. So there's still, there's still a, a viable product in the world of uh, sound. Well, there's only one company left today that still makes them, by the way. Yes, they are still. There's one company left. You can still buy pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes. They, they cost 500 bucks each. Mm. It comes on two reels, two 10-inch reels, unless you subscribe on a subscription basis, and they're 300 bucks each. And there's not even anyone making reel-to-reel machines anymore. You have to buy a refurbished 7- or 10-inch reel-to-reel machines that will do 15 inches per second if you really want high-quality audio. You said they're not making the reel-to-reels anymore. Which, which, so they're doing them digitally then? Oh, well, they're doing them compact disc is the, is, is the format on which things are distributed today, of course, digitally. So, so you're, getting, you're getting the same quality or maybe better quality anyway. I think so. My personal opinion is, is that a good CD off the master tape, which is how CDs are made, should sound as good as a high-quality, high-speed, uh, should sound better even than a high-quality, high-speed analog tape. Is that what you're talking about? I'm just wondering if there's some people out there that are getting just a little too persnickety with their sound. Oh, it's been that, it's been that way since the Edison Cylinder days, and certainly that way since the days of Hi-Fi and the late. Well, yes, there are people who are too persnickety with their sound, but I mean, if you're into it, if you're into it, you're into it. Well, God bless them. If that's what they want, they can have it, right? Um, 
come with them. Okay. A lot of the tapes, Mike, when you do find them, the tapes are in pretty good condition, aren't they? Uh, Most of the time, because they haven't been played too much, they are in pretty good condition. I mean, of course, when you buy pre-recorded tapes, every once in a while you find one that has been erased. You're listening to the music, and all of a sudden comes New Year's Eve, 1965. <laughs> or uh, you'll find <laughs> tapes that have been mangled or damaged or stretched uh, or spliced. That does happen. I mean, it's not like an LP where you can give it a quick look and you know what's what, just at a glance, pretty much. So you do take that chance. These tapes were popular certainly throughout the 60s and still advertised in the 1970s, and allegedly the last pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes were made sometime in the 80s, though I've never seen them. I- I've never seen hardly anything much past the mid to late 60s, just available, you know, insofar as garage sale pickings goes. I don't know what's on eBay. Would the dawn of 8-track and dawn of cassette, would that have been kind of a death knell for open reel, Mike? Not 8-track, because 8-track was primarily a, a car format and a background mm. music format. Cassettes. Cassettes really competed head-to-head with reel-to-reel because not initially, but later on, particularly when companies like Nakamichi got into it, making very high-quality cassette decks that could approach rival and sometimes even exceed, hard to believe, the quality of, uh, of a 10-inch reel-to-reel. Uh, maybe not quite in signal-to-noise, but with Dolby, they could. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, that was the absolute end for reel-to-reel tapes. And by the way, reel-to-reel tapes have to be duplicated pretty much in real time, or maybe at double time. You can't go much more than that, whereas, you know, records, you can bang them out all day long. You bang them out in a second, but a tape has to be duplicated pretty much in the speed at which it's recorded. So it takes a lot more time to produce a pre-recorded tape of high quality than a record that you could stamp out or a CD, you know, 100 an hour. And, Mike, I've seen, you know, in my travels, I've seen a lot of these pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes from that time period. Some were released at the 7.5 speed. Some were released at the 3 and 3 quarter speed. That's true. And 7.5 is so much superior than 3 and 3 quarter. Absolutely. Amongst the guys who were into this, the 7.5 inch reel-to-reel, particularly two-track, 1950s two-track, not quarter-track, are by far the most sought after. Uh, Things that are on 3 and 3 quarters, there was a drop in sound quality, though it still sounds pretty right. good to me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right about it. I believe the latest stuff that's being released today, the high-priced ones that are still being made today, those are all 15 inches per second, 10-inch reels, two-track stereo. Like I said, it's very expensive. It's 500 bucks a tape. Oh, my gosh. But these tapes, they come right off the masters. Okay. They come right off the master tapes. You're getting a first-generation copy okay. off the master. Does it sound any better than a CD? I would say technically, theoretically, no. But I have to admit, I've never actually A-B'd one against the CD, but it's got to sound extremely good. That's moving a lot of tape real fast. Right. Mike, what about the collectivity of these tapes? Are there people that are collecting these tapes? Is there a market for them if uh, somebody's collecting them? Yeah, there is definitely a market for them, particularly the early two-track stuff, Mm -hmm. which was produced by Capital and RCA and both classical and popular. The early two-track on 7.5 inches per second is very hot no matter what it is. Once you get into the four-track tapes, especially once they get into three and three quarters, then the kind of the collectability and the desirability drops off quite a bit. Even the early mono tapes, some of which came in a metal can, and some of them came on three and five inch reels, not just seven inch reels, and there might might have even been some released on 10-inch, though I've never seen them, would still be very, very desirable. But two-track stereo, man, that gets guys going. If you go to a record show and somebody's got a box of two-track, oh, man, they'll pounce on that no matter what it is. Wow. The two-track is to separate the sound. You have different things on one track than on the other one, so you get the differential in the stereo. Yes, yes. You you have one channel recorded on one track and the other Mm -hmm. channel recorded, as opposed to four-track, where you have stereo, and then you flip the tape over, and you can play back the other side, but to do that, the tracks have to be half the width, and now you trade off about 6 dB in single-to-noise ratio for that I luxury, see. and that's at 
and a half ips, not a three and three quarters. So you trade off even more. But you're saying two tracks will do it for most people. Oh, two tracks would do it for anybody. I mean, you know, really, two track stereo. T- I've got some, and I played them back on my Ampex, and I can't imagine sound needing to be any better than that. I mean, a CD would have a little bit of an advantage in dynamic range, maybe. But the original master tapes, which go back to the 50s and 60s, were recorded on Scotch 111 tape without any Dolby, and you know, they sound great. Mike, what about caring for some of these tapes? Let's say somebody out there has some tapes or they, they find some tapes. What's the best way to, to play them or to be you know, gentle with them and not really damage them or harm them in any way? Standard precautions as they apply to any tape. Storage in a cool, dry place. If possible, play it and don't rewind it. Obviously, keep it away from any strong magnetic fields because once you erase it, it's gone. But, well, other than that, there's a lot less maintenance even that's involved with a record. A record, ideally, you have to clean it before you play it. You have to worry about tracking for us and is the stylus in good condition and you have a wad of crud and so on with tapes as long as the whole back tension is not too bad and the machine's in good shape you probably get thousands of plays out of it wow okay you know. your repair guy i find an akai a reel-to-reel at a thrift store five six bucks great what would be a ballpark on fixing this but what would be the most I would expect to put one of these in service. On a reel-to-reel machine. Yeah, reel-to-reel. If you're going to buy a reel-to-reel machine, avoid at all costs, even for free, a single-motor machine if you can help it. Single-motor. The reason is so many of the rubber parts are just not available. Okay. But you can get three-motor, you know, TX, for example, or Abundant. You can pick them up for, for nothing, practically. And those are bulletproof decks that are just the last to run forever. And I would say, you know, if it just needs the usual going through, cleaning up, and so on, maybe it's an hour or two worth of time. Maybe you're, you're certainly under 100 bucks, and probably 50 to 70 and uh, if you can get a two-track machine, a, a, they call it half-track stereo, even better if you happen to have any of the half-track you know, stereo well, for the For the listeners, will it say on the case, will it say three-motor, half-track? Our listeners, a lot of them are beginning collectors, or they are collectors, yeah. or they found something and they need tips. How do I find a good one? How do I find... Mm-hmm. A crummy one. Okay. Uh, if it has garage grunge on it, is it not as worth as much as if I, uh, they don't know? Excellent tip is if you want to buy yeah. a reel-to-reel machine, you want something solenoid-operated. If it's solenoid-operated, that virtually guarantees it's a three-motor machine. In other words, it doesn't have the big clunky handle on the front for stop, rewind, fast forward. Those are almost always single-motor machines. Okay. And definitely stay with any of the machines out of the 70s, the TX, the Tascams, uh, certainly a Crown or a Revox, or if you come across an Ampex or something like that. But most of the time, you're going to find a 70s TX. Those seem to be really popular. And sometimes a Panasonic or a Techniques that was made in to the early 80s. Those are great machines. Parts could be rough, but fortunately, usually, if the heads are in good shape, they don't need much in the way of parts. I mean, a three-motor machine has a pinch roller and maybe one belt, and that's it. So, you know, they're bulletproof machines. They're basically built to last forever, though the later machines, like anything else, are a little more of a job to maintain and repair and so on. And just bear in mind that parts availability is probably going to be really close to zero. How about value on a collector's side? What what would be the top valuable reel-to-reel tape decks out there? Of a consumer machine? Somebody comes across one at a garage sale. Uh, the, the paid five dollars, it's worth five hundred. What's well, that? Well, uh, the consumer machine. What's the what's the one that you have? Gilbert? The RS seven. The, the Technics uh, RS fifteen hundred. I think that was their last one, and that I, right. and that's a nice machine. If yeah, you pick up one of those, nice those machine. seem to be very desirable. Right. Okay. Bang for the buck. I, I think you can hardly go wrong with some. For, I've got a, a Crown eight hundred that I picked up at a garage sale that was made into the late seventies, early eighties, which is just beautiful. Uh, any of the Ampexes, solid state, or of course tube type, uh, are are just superb. Uh, Revoxes are. Seem to be abundant, especially the A77s. I mean, you just can't go wrong with these machines. Just bear in mind that if you need any parts, 
then you're up a tree because most of these companies are either gone or do not support the machine with parts anymore. Pioneer is really good. You can still get some pinch rollers for some of the Pioneer reel-to-reel machines. But other than that, you're out of luck. Well, and folks, if you, if you do have one out there and you want to resurrect it, you want to do some work to it, We've got the guy right here who can do that. Why don't you give us your website address and well, the particulars on how to get a hold of you? Audiocraftsman.com. Audiocraftsman.com. Or you give me a call, uh, 858-271-8294. Or you can email us. Or you can email, us. Or you can email of or course. You can email us, and we'll definitely put the message through we'll to Mike. Over. Exactly. Well, Mike, just before we let this subject go, then uh, is there any particular desirability on any of these tapes if getting back to the tapes if anybody sees one at a garage sale is a classical one more desirable than a popular one are there a certain group certain genres that are more popular or more desirable than a classical uh... well the great majority of the early stuff is going to be classical the very first one that rca came out with and i don't know the title off the top of my head was a classical title and that's very much sought after um, once you get into the 60s, the rock and roll and the jazz and the pop stuff is certainly more sought after than the classical stuff is. And once you get through the 1970s, when almost everything was on three and three quarter, I would say it's safe to say that unless it was something iconic like the Beatles or something, right. you know, you could pick them up all day long. I shouldn't say that. You can find them, especially on eBay, for relatively cheap. Okay. So, but you want that early stuff, you know. Very good. Very good. Well, well, before we go, I have a tape I'd like you to hear. Oh. <laughs> yes, what I brought with me. What's the title of that tape? Uh, this is uh, what's well, on Scotch. <laughs> a thousand and two uses for painters. Yeah. Yes. I don't know what it is, but I know it's blues. That's it's for sure. Blue. Blues. It, yes, it's blues. Very good. Well, Mike, thanks so much for that good information on pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes and reel-to-reel decks. Always a pleasure. It's anytime. always a pleasure to have you with us. We're going to pause right now for a retro commercial, and then we'll be back with more of GalaxyMoonbeamNightSight.com. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Have you noticed? You hear something new at fountains today. People who think young say, Pepsi, please. The lively crowd today agrees. Those who think young say, Pepsi, please. They pick the right one, the modern light one. Now it's Pepsi for those who think young. When you say, Pepsi, please, you're putting yourself among. How about that? For it's Pepsi for those who think young. I've been thinking young for years, and then I became an old guy. I don't know what happened. <laughs> anyway, you're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. A couple of things. We've got the email address, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. The website, galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. And on Facebook, too. We are now on Facebook. Visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight page on Facebook. My name is Michael Anthony. Until his death a few years ago, I was executive secretary to the fabulously wealthy John Bearsford Tipton. This is Silverstone, the 60,000-acre estate. Michael Anthony. Here we go again, full circle, from one of the great golden, golden years of television, a show called The Millionaire. You know, today we've got the reality TV shows, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? 
And, of course, we've got the nightly lotto ticket drawings, but there actually was a show. And the show was actually a CBS property, wasn't it, Smitty? It was a yes, CBS? I believe it was a CBS property. CBS. Uh, the Millionaire was actually, it aired on CBS. Actually, it debuted on January 19th, 1955, and ran until 1960. And it was sponsored by Colgate Palmolive. And the series explored the ways unexpected wealth changed life, better or for worth, for the average person. The show became a five-season hit. Thanks in a large part to a twist that also made a bit of cult classic in the years that followed its life, the so-called golden era. The show centered around the stories of unknown people who were given seemingly out of nowhere $1 million from a benefactor who insisted they never knew who he was. And what was the benefactor's name, Ian? His name was, and he had, he had three names, so you know he was really important, John Beresford Tipton. That's right, and as I recall, CBS ran those in reruns in the 60s at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, in L.A. anyway. Okay. It was afternoon programming, along with Sea Hunt and some of those shows. Didn't quite make it, but I remember The Millionaire, and here we are, grade school boys, and we'd catch this show, and then for the rest of the afternoon, figure out what we would do with the million dollars <laughs> if Michael Anthony showed up at yeah. the door with a check. I, now, who was the voice of John Beresford, because you never saw his face. Was it Forsyth? Uh, no. Okay. Was It sounded to me... I know what clip, it was. Was it Paul Freese? It was Paul, Paul Freese. All right. Very good. All right. Very I, win, good. I win the Peppermint Candy Bar. He was yes, you do. The and voice uh, of the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. The Haunted okay. Mansion. Uh, a Disney <clears throat> voice. Yeah. Yes. For a lot of Disney movies. Yeah. Mike Z, do you remember uh, The Millionaire? I do. Wasn't that the show where he had a secretary named Della, and you could only see her le- only her legs were shown? Am I correct about that? No, I think you. No, that's, no, 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 that's, that's David Jensen. David Jensen had a show like that. Was it a millionaire? And, and the, no, I think the millionaire you only saw. Uh, I think that was her secretary. His secretary name was Della, and only her legs were shown. He said, and he would say, "Della, you know, take this check to so and so." Am I mistaken uh, about this? Or no, it? because Michael Anthony was the one that would deliver the checks, right? Yeah, Mike, right? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, and his legs weren't that great. No, no. no okay, then maybe I'm mistaken. <laughs> maybe I should just stick to pre-recorded tapes and shut up. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, Michael Michael Anthony was played by none other than Marvin Miller. Marvin Miller, who was actually the voice of Robbie the Robot, and who else? Uh, uh, oh, now you got me going. Okay. <laughs> See, uh, also, um, oh, that's no, not a softball. No, I, I don't. Uh, is, is it a cartoon character? Could be. Um, 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 give me a little hint. Come on. A lot of Disney shows. Disney shows. Yeah. Uh, he was a Disney character. He was a Disney character, right? Okay. And if uh, we if we spend Jose Carioca. Jose Carioca, very good. I was a guess. Yeah, that was good. You got it. I just pulled that out of the air. You nailed it. Wow. Very good. <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> How about anyway, the show, the show surrounded the idea that anyone could get a knock at the door at any time. And this, mind you, this was mid fifties, late fifties television. Queen for a day, uh, the dream come true. You had the wife pretty much at home taking care of the house while the husband went to work. And uh, this was referred to the golden age of dream TV. Mm -hmm. What if? What if? Mm -hmm. What if Michael Anthony showed up and actually delivered a check for a million dollars? And the premise of the show is how people's lives were changed by being given a million dollars by a complete stranger, uh, this benefactor who we never got to see. It was almost cultish because it had a kind of a edgy humor to the show. I remember one episode where uh, Michael Anthony was talking and he would walk in, he would walk in and we would hear the benefactor 
And in this particular episode, the benefactor was in his big room with his model train set. And he would talk about the person who was going to receive the check and put the check on the gondola and send it down the tracks over to... Do you remember that? That's true. Yeah. Oh, gosh, you do have a good memory. Does that jar, does that jar some <laughs> thoughts there? And all we could think about there in, in uh, L.A. was, what a cool train set. You know... If they come up and bring a million dollars, we'll get a train set like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I remember that the people that Michael Anthony would deliver the checks to had a variety of reactions. Yes. Some people would just tear the checks up, right? Some would give to charity. Yeah. Some would do good work. Some would uh, squander the money. Some would tear the checks up. I think on one episode, the guy ended up on Skid Row. <laughs> oh, really? Episode, and, and of course it, because remember, the taxes were paid on this as well. And they made it very clear in several yes. episodes. And, of course, I have already paid the taxes on this money. Uh, Never could figure that part out. Yeah, interesting. Uh, maybe keep the IRS away from the yeah. studio. Yeah. yeah. But I brought that up, number one, because we always talk about the golden age and coming back full circle. Mm-hmm. We're back in reality TV. We've just got more of an in-your-face version of The Millionaire here in 2010, 2011. But we've also got an episode from the golden age of television that featured, much like the Twilight Zone did, several new beginning actors that went on to bigger things. And I'll start reading them. Please do. This is the part that Ian just loves. Oh, yes. Yeah. This, this comes under a section of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight stuff that Ian Rose wasn't quite aware of. <laughs> but numerous then and future familiar faces appeared as guest performers during the Millionaire's productions, including Charles Bronson, mm. Joe Besser of the Three Stooges, yes. Carl Betts, Donna Reed, yep. yeah, Carl Betts, Peggy Castle, Ben Cooper, Pat Conway, Russ Conway, Ellen Corby, remember her? Grandma uh, from uh, the Waltons. Another Twilight Zone star. Richard Deacon, Mary Tyler Moore, John Erickson, Beverly Garland, Carolyn Jones, Beverly Gar- Adams. Beverly Garland just passed away recently. Hugh O'Brien, Phyllis Coates. Yes, from Superman. Superman, there you go. Joyce Meadows. And it'll play on names. We had Martin Miller and a guest by the name of Adam 12, Martin Milner <laughs> on that show. Oh, boy. Ah, I wonder what the cast call was like on that one. <laughs> Deborah Paget. One of your favorites, again. Uh, yes, movie star. Yes, Denver Pyle, yes. Angie Dickinson, mm-hmm. Robert Vaughn, Agnes Moorhead, Wayne Rogers, Aaron Spelling. You know he was an actor once? He was. Must have been a long time ago. Yeah. And then Elizabeth Montgomery's husband, Dick York. That's right. The other. How many? The, she had two, the, the other Mr. Bewitch. She yes. had two husbands. One died. Dick Sargent died. And the other one's still with Dick us. Dick York is still with us. Still with or us. vice versa. Okay. Anyway, good stuff. That was The Millionaire, and uh, that was our session on Full Circle. Interesting, Mike. And right now, when you mentioned Mary Tyler Moore, you reminded me that what Mike Z was thinking about, it was Mary Tyler Moore's legs. That's right. On, um, what was the name of the show? I I thought it was The Millionaire, but I guess I'm mistaken. um, I'm sorry. David Jansen's show. No, 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 no. I don't think it was. You're not thinking of, it wasn't uh, the one with Raymond Bird. No, no. no. It was way before Iron Man. No, it was Della, though. Well, Della. It was Della Street. She played a character. Perry Mason. Perry Mason. It was a Perry Mason. Okay. But Mary Tyler Moore got in the business as a leg model. Right. Did she really? A commercial leg model. Yeah. Harry O. No, no, no. It was 50s black and white. 50s black and white. It was 50s, and you're. Okay. Drum roll. Richard Diamond, Richard Private Diamond, Private Detective. Oh, yes. David Jansen. 
All right, sorry, Mike. And Mike Bragg. Mike Zeig nailed it. He gets half of the case of Diet Coke. Yes, and Mike Bragg gets the peppermint candy bar. Mike, thank you for that that piece. That was very interesting. We're just about at the end of our show, but before we leave you, we want to remind you about how you can get a hold of us and come check out our website. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Come check out our website and see what we've got. We've got some new pictures there for you. And send us an email. Let us know how you like our shows. We're also on Facebook now. So come see us on Facebook. Now, do those pictures include... Mary Tyler Moore's legs? They probably will at some point if we can find some pictures of Mary Tyler Moore's legs. We will leave legs. it up to Gilbert to look up Mary Tyler I will Moore's do legs. That. Thank you. I will and do that. Don't forget SaturdayNightSockHop.com. Oh, we have Mike Z Saturday. here. He gave yes. us a full story on one of our other episodes. Yes. But he is the proprietor and chief bottle washer and, and DJ and all the way. Yes. The rock and roller. So definitely check out. Duwapola. Yes. Saturday. Oh, God. No, we don't want that. Oh, Saturday. nothing like a dys- dyslexic radio host. <laughs> SaturdayNightSockHop.com. We'll see you soon. Yeah, we, we <laughs> can check out Mike's website as well. We're going to end now before we really go over the top here. So yeah. until next time, folks, we hope you can join us then. But until next time, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. One more hit before we split. I'm Mike Sakara. All right, Whoa. great, Mike. So we'll see you all next time. And that's it. On Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. Thank you.